Welcome to another edition of the Portland, Oregon OWASP podcast. Today, we'll be talking to one of our own, Tim Morgan. Tim has had a fascinating journey in the world of security. He started in his teens as an old school hacker and now owns his own security consulting and research company headquartered right here in Portlandia. For the past three years, Tim has been working on a new, innovative risk-based vulnerability management system called Deep Surface. It's built on both hard science and hard lessons that he learned from his customers over the years. For more information about Deep Surface and Tim, go to conchil.com. That's K-A-N-C-H-I-L.com. Tim Morgan, thank you for coming here today. Sure. I'm going through your bio here, and we've known each other for a couple of years already. But for the other folks, uh, you've earned your computer science degree. You got a BS from Harvey Mudd College mm-hmm. for computer science and a master's science at Northeastern University. Spending a short time as a software developer. I think if I remember right, you were working for, for the man, basically. And then something inside you said, I don't want to work for the man anymore. Tell me that transition from what made you work from the regular cubicle days to starting your own research and and consulting company. Yeah, boy. Well, it was a long road. I mean, I guess when I graduated from undergrad, the job market was crap because it was right after the dot-com bubble bust. And so it was really hard to find any job at all as a programmer, let alone doing what you really want to do. I, I worked for about a year and a half here for a little company called Covey, who's still around. And it was great experience there, but I knew I wanted to do security. So I just kept looking for different gigs, different things that I could, you know, get some experience in that. But but even then I, you know, started doing vulnerability research, found a vulnerability in real player, if you remember that, mm-hmm. uh, oh, that yeah. player. Yeah. So published that, I think that was around 2002. And, you know, just kept, you know, trying to up my resume on in that area. But I ended up actually working a little while for a company that was uh, building a secure operations center. And I was going to be, you know, watching the the logs, you know, doing the intrusion detection kind of stuff and just mm-hmm. monitoring, you know, kind of 24-7 type of facility. That company failed in 10 months. So <laughs> so it was just one thing after another where, you know, you, you try to get started and then it, it doesn't work out because the economy was bad. And so my wife and I just said, screw it, we're going back to school. Let's just do that. By the time we get done, we'll be more marketable and hopefully the economy will turn around. So we uh, went to Northeastern University, both of us, and started the program there. I think there was just a lot more opportunities in Boston for folks in security because mm-hmm. there's a lot of financial sector type companies there. And at that time, they were that was one of the few sectors that actually was spending on computer security. You know, whereas nowadays, you know, you have a lot of different regulations in different areas. But uh, the financial sector really started off in that because they actually care about not losing money on on these things. And so, so I, I actually answered a Craigslist posting to be a pen tester and eventually got the job and started, you know, started doing a part-time, actually is, is sort of full-time doing pen testing. So that's really what got me started with the, the deeper security stuff um, mm-hmm. on the technical side and being able to do it day to day. And so I, I worked there for eight and a half years and from, you know, moved around a lot, but kept working for uh, that company. And by learning how the consulting business worked, it was a very small consulting company. And by learning all the aspects of the business, that made me feel like I could do this on my own right. because now I know how to do it. I know all the different pieces. And so eventually I just kind of felt like I was limited in some way because when you're working for the same, in the same position for eight and a half years, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's only so much further you can grow, sure. right? Um, and I wanted more free time to try out different projects, to try out different things. I'd always considered wanting to get into 
maybe building a product of some kind, but I didn't really know what. And so I, I finally decided just to go up my own and try to do the consulting thing on my own. And that, that ended up working out really well. After about six months, and I was really busy, and then I was able to uh, just keep keep doing that. And so, you know, just being your own boss has a lot of perks, a lot of, it's actually in, in a lot of ways, it's less stressful mm-hmm. than, than having to work for a manager or whatever. You have a lot more flexibility in that sense anyway. But even going before that a little bit, I mean, you were in software development. Why security? Was there something specific about your job before all of this that piqued your interest in security? I mean, it's very cliche, but I was the stereotypical hacker in high school. Okay. I, I got into stuff that I shouldn't have been getting into, and fortunately, you know, it there. You know, I didn't do anything bad or evil. It's just right. I was the sort of curiosity thing and wanting to learn how these systems worked and be able to get on the internet um, when maybe the teachers don't want you to get on the internet right. and you know all these different different motivations that a high school kid would have to kind of mess around. And I, I was playing around with security at, at a very early age, uh, probably freshman in high school, and then just continued to learn more about it throughout. And then I decided, well, I don't want to be a black hat. Uh, th- that doesn't yeah. make sense, you know. And and so I, I always just dreamed of having something where I could do security and actually as a job, you know, because back then there really weren't that many positions available. There weren't, uh, the whole idea of application security wasn't even a thing. Well, even at school, right? They weren't really teaching back then. Oh, no, no security at all. We didn't even, we didn't even have any programming classes in my high school. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's literally picking up a textbook. Yeah. You know, I taught myself how to program on the Commodore 64 from the manual. They actually had it in the the manuals back then. (laughs) They taught you how to program. It's, it's, it was very different back then. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And even today, even with schools that do have cybersecurity programs, that's good in itself. But just the basics of doing secure coding, Mm -hmm. uh, some good hygiene is, if you will, from security hygiene perspective is still not being taught in the regular courses, like the regular, uh, C, C plus plus courses, like what's a buffer overflow. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's still a challenge today. Yeah. I think that's a huge problem. And I, and whenever I get a chance to complain about it, I I tell lots of people about it, (laughs) um, including academics. Yeah. I, I feel that right now there, there are a lot of opportunities compared to when we were you know, going through school mm-hmm. uh, to take security courses, but that's only if you want to. Right. Right. It's all optional. So you either go into a program for it or you take an elective to to learn about security. But there's a big problem with that in that lots and lots of developers are coming out of school, whether it be through a, tip, a traditional CS program or from a code school, some you know case where maybe people are switching career paths or whatever, and they they go to a code school or whatever they do to to learn how to program. And in in almost all those curricula, there are no requirements to learn about security or how to avoid vulnerabilities. Let me continue on with your bio here. So you've been in this about 14 years, uh, doing your work as a consultant. And but what's interesting is that you've done a lot of different things, not just for doing like application pen testing, but you've gone into the IT side for incident response, mm-hmm. totally different world. Uh, digital forensic, totally mm-hmm. different world as well. And also secure software development training, phishing exercises, and breach simulations. What are breach simulations? Uh, it's I, I try to come up with a different term for it because really it's a true pen test. So the word pen test really comes from what military and whatever, where you're actually just trying to break in and get to the crown jewels, right? Mm-hmm. You're, right. You're, you're focusing on a very deep assessment where all you're trying to do is prove that something is possible. But most pen tests that we do today, the, the actual work is actually very broad, right? We, we look at the breadth of all the possible vulnerabilities that we can find because that provides more value to customers, most customers, most mm-hmm. of the time find all my bugs and I'll decide what I want to fix, right? Um, Whether that be at a network level or an application level or, or whatever it is. But 
the, the traditional idea was that you would actually, maybe I would fish some user and then from there I would run some Metasploit uh, and then I'd go to this and I'd get into that database afterward, mm-hmm. right? And actually prove that you can get to something through multiple techniques maybe. So basically a breach simulation is, is like that, right. is where you're trying to go deep. And uh, what's interesting about those kinds of, you know, I one a customer a while back asked me to to do something like this and I thought, okay, I I guess I, I'm not sure if this is really the best use of your resources, but I'm happy to do that. Mm-hmm. So the parameters of that were they gave me a machine on their internal network, but the machine had no access. I had no credentials. I just was on the network, right? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I was able to get to their their crown jewels in about a day and a half. And then we did that repeatedly over and over again. Each time they fixed a few things, they they learned from that. But then mm-hmm. they wanted me to try different ways to do the same thing. And in the end, I only was able to write up like, I don't know, 10 or 15 vulnerabilities Whereas if you do a traditional pen test, you'd have hundreds, thousands of them, right? But what that did for them was they were able to take all those attack scenarios and all those things that actually occurred. And then they created a very good presentation and, and presented it to their board. And they showed them that, look, even though, you know, this vulnerability here is on the internal network and, you know, unpatched or whatever the issue is, configuration problem, that that actually is part of a, a bigger picture. And, you need, and it really helped the board understand what, the, what a breach really looks like. You've been doing this for 14 years. Are your customers more savvy in terms of security today? As if you're walking in and and you don't have to lead them all the way, or is it still a mixed bag? It's definitely a mixed bag. I would say on average, folks are maybe a bit more savvy. You have more folks on staff who are dedicated to security, but at the same time, you you know, there's not enough of us to go around. Right. There's just not enough security folks to go around. So depending on the maturity of the industry generally, which really comes back to how regulated are they and how long have they been regulated? What are the business drivers for actually investing in security? It, it varies widely, and so it varies more now than it did back then. Because, right. you know, back in the beginning, you know, you really had a, a lack of knowledge about application security and completely. It was all about network security, firewalls and patching things. And that has really, you know, definitely changed over time. Yeah. So, I mean, it varies. I, I guess right. this is the right. answer. Are you seeing businesses or your customers being more proactive or is it, again, maybe a reactive situation that they, they need to call you or maybe it's a regulatory thing? Or are you also seeing more saying we really need this is on our own effort. Mm-hmm. We, sh- we should have some third party external auditor entity to come in and to do that. Sort of, is that your mix of customers that you're seeing today or has it changed from the beginning to now? You know, I think in the very beginning, like I mentioned, um, the early customers were all in financial sector. And I think back then, because there was so little regulation, that was actually all about doing the right thing and actually protecting the business and just protecting customers and, and all that kind of thing. But as different industries started getting regulated, you get more and more folks are driven completely by by the compliance, by the different regulations and complying with those. And so really, most programs are all all completely starting there, which is more businesses invest in security now, but the reasons they do it are really just for, so they don't get fined or, or what have you. So it's definitely the biggest driver. Let me ask you this then, is there enough regulation? Is is something like GDPR needed here? It's, I, I'm not sure. I feel like most of the regulations and the approach that we've, we've been taking in the past for regulating, you know, data and privacy, it's really not been nearly as effective as one would hope. I feel like, and this is, this is hard to do, and of course that's probably why we haven't done it, but I feel like what would be more effective is 
making co- companies much more liable for mistakes mm-hmm. for for the bad things happening. So um, sure, there's some class action lawsuits and that kind of thing, but often there are so many breaches happening every month that it's it's become noise and you know rarely is there any real you know compensation for those kinds of breaches. But more importantly, you you need to go further up the chain. So as we were talking about developers reducing the number of vulnerabilities they're producing every year, we need to push uh, the responsibility further up the chain on software companies. Mm-hmm. So if a large software company, let's say, you know, just to pick on some people, Oracle or Microsoft or Adobe, mm-hmm. if they're making you patch their software every month, uh, and that's really expensive, then is is that really fair? It, it, it's it's like if I if okay, I, I, of course, everyone hates the car analogies, right? But if I sell you a car, and then every month you have to come back in for a recall, because something was broken, something doesn't work right, or something might crash on you uh, or cause you to crash, nobody would accept that. And so why is it we can't ship software without a ton of vulnerabilities in them? And that it, we really need to push it back on software de- developers. So that will make it a lot easier on all the other companies in the world not to have so many issues. What's interesting is the work that you're doing now. So for the past three years, you've been building this innovative system that we, you just showed me, but it's this new, it's a risk-based vulnerability management system called mm-hmm. Deep Surface. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that is. What's, what's the impetus behind that? Yeah. So for me, multiple different factors came together to try that, that really motivated me to build this. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I'd always kind of wanted to build some sort of product or mm-hmm. find some way to do something innovative. But after I started working for myself, then I started to work more directly with customers and start getting a much better sense as to what the problems were. You know, when you work as a pen tester, often there's someone doing customer relationship management and, and you, you don't really get to feel the pain of the customer mm-hmm. firsthand. And so as I started working with customers more closely, I started to, you know, just realize that that communication of risk was really poor. You know, you, we have a lot of automated tools to help us identify problems, but then figuring out which of those issues are more important or less important, where we should actually spend our really precious time mm-hmm. trying to address things is really hard to know, right? And everyone just does a gut check. Mm-hmm. They see this massive list of problems that their application has or their uh, environment has, and they just do a gut check. And that's not scaling. Over the the time I've been in security, the number of issues that are being reported has dramatically increased, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's an exponential curve. And so the way we were doing things in the beginning just doesn't work anymore, but we're still doing it that way. So it sounds like there's all this noise that's coming back. And the question is, how do I manage this risk in something that's meaningful to me? Is, yeah, right. This is the type of tooling you're working on now, right? Right, right. It's a, yeah. So the, the Deep Surface product is really designed to make it really easy to get the big picture, but at the same time, not be not have all the details completely washed out, right? Mm-hmm. We really need to base our threat model on hard data of what actually exists in your environment, but at the same time, boil it down to these are the things you should be focusing on based on you know what's important to your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I mean, one big problem that we have is you know, for, back when I was in high school, if if someone was working on computers, they just called them a computer person, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Now we have dozens and dozens of different roles that all deal with computers. And everyone who's not a computer person is, is also working on a computer all the time, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so the world's changed a lot. And so you have this massive diverse, diversification of roles and different tasks, you know, the areas of knowledge that people have, and everyone ends up getting siloed. So if you come into security and you have a networking background, you're going to understand maybe really well the kinds of security problems with networking, encryption and routing and all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But you may not have a very good understanding of application level vulnerabilities or even operating system level vulnerabilities. And so fo- you might be tended to focus on all those network issues much more closely, whereas your other colleagues might 
might be focusing on other areas. And then you might argue about what's more important because to you, you understand that technology better and nobody can have a deep understanding of all those areas of technology. And so what you end up also with is folks don't, uh, maybe an application developer doesn't realize that the network doesn't work quite the way they thought it did. Their assumptions about security are just wrong. Vice versa, the network folks may not realize that the application developers are doing that thing and that that's why we need to protect the network a certain way. And so what you have is because of all the siloing of this technical knowledge, nobody has a clear view of where to start. You have vulnerabilities in all these areas. If right. I come in and do a pen test, I'm focused on maybe one application for a week and then I ship you a report. And something to me that seemed like a high risk vulnerability in that application does that really matter to your business overall though? I mean, maybe the worst bug I could possibly find in that app was a cross-site scripting bug. And really most of the time cross-site scripting bugs are just not that important. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is they're not. And so when you when you look at the threat model, the big picture of it, then you want to understand how does that fit into that. And so it is really hard to pull out together. So the Deep Surface product tries to make that extremely easy by automatically bringing in data from a variety of different sources and building a threat model that actually is a computational threat model that helps you answer questions about uh, different aspects of the system. So let's let's start with the model. Let's mm -hmm. say I'm I'm brand new customer, you're coming in. How does that workflow start? Sure. Yeah. So we set up our systems and they run a, a sort of a typical security scan. It's very similar to the kinds of scans that your typical vulnerability scanners would use. So uh, it's an authenticated scan. We log in and we basically gather information about user accounts, privileges, domain privileges, what groups you're in, all that kind of stuff. Just really general high level stuff on each system in the network as well as at the domain level. And then what we do is we bring in data through the APIs from your vulnerability scanner. And we map that into the model to understand, okay, you may not have a lot of privileges now, but by exploiting this particular issue, then you would suddenly have a lot more privileges in the domain, maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe with a, something as trivial as a local privilege escalation bug, you might be able to get access then to run something like Mimikatz and then steal credentials out of memory. And at that point, you might own the domain. So even though it's only a local privilege escalation bug, it could be really important to you. Now, there's a lot of those nuanced kinds of issues that people don't realize that are stepping stones to something much bigger. And if you're not an expert on Windows OS kernel security, then you're, or whatever, you're not really going to realize that, that that bug is really important in context. And then we, we also try to identify, and this is somewhat manual process at the moment, but we identify which assets are actually important to your business. Mm -hmm. It's really important to, to tie it into business risk, not just some sort of ill-defined technical risk. So for instance, you might think your domain controller is one of the most important things to you, but it's only important because it gives people access to lots of stuff. And the stuff that matters to the business is the business applications. So we, we have the customer identify their business applications, databases, and what have you, the things that would be a very bad day if they were owned. And then uh, from there, the, the system automatically works out which of the vulnerabilities are most important to fix in order to prevent those things from being uh, accessed. It almost feels like you still have the good old-fashioned CVSS scoring system where you have the technical and all of these different attributes that go into mm -hmm. that, but then you're adding this extra dimension about how does it affect business. Yeah, a lot of the, the attributes of a CVSS score all speak to the technical complexity or likelihood that a bug might be exploited, you know, they're really rough measures. I mean, if you ever tried, have ever tried to assign a CVSS score to a bug that you know about, it's you're really shoving a square peg into a round hole every time. And you might rate three or four bugs and think one of them is really bad and the other one's not, and it comes out with the same score or whatever, right? It's, it's, it's really not that precise. And, and it varies widely depending on what environment you're in. And so, and that's something that in a, in a perfect world, we would take each of those bugs that might affect us and go through and do the analysis and try to figure out, okay, 
does this matter to, you know, my business applications? Does this matter to, you know, is it going to make it easier to get fished? Is it whatever it is? But nobody has time for that. There's many thousands of these bugs being released every month or if not every year. And so really nobody can take the time to do that analysis. And so that's why we need to find a way to automate this. The, the amount of data we're having to to deal with for security is just growing so fast, we have to come up with smarter ways to, to prioritize. So in our system, we use a lot of the, the attributes that are on a CVSS score to estimate how hard it is to exploit something or how likely an attacker might want to use that. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's an off-the-shelf exploit, then why not? And it, and if it's, you know, some interface is exposed to the attacker, then why not use it? But if there's no off-the-shelf exploit, then maybe that's harder. Um, or if it's going to crash the server, then maybe they don't want to use it because they're going to tip you off. And so there's a lot of those, that kind of game theory we think about with the attacker and what would they really want to do? Being a pen tester, I have a better sense of that, right? right? If I'm breaking into an environment, I have a better sense of what bugs would I really want to leverage to get access to something. And so uh, with that perspective, we can kind of bring together the attacker's perspective on what they would want to do in your environment. And then because we're scanning your environment, now we have the blue teams, the the, def- the defender's perspective. Mm-hmm. They know their architecture. Well, now we know the architecture, right? So we can combine those two worlds where I think there's often a disconnect between those 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 camps. Why did you choose that computational model? Graph theory? Yeah. Well, really, I, I sort of settled on it after doing a lot of application architecture assessments, where what we would do is we'd look at, you know, it's kind of a high-level assessment. It's only a few days long, usually, where we just look at all the different components in an application. You know, how are you talking to the database? What kinds of different services are you running in order to support the app and that kind of thing? But I always had a lot of trouble trying to capture all the security information of even a single application. And all the different threat modeling techniques that were out there just it just didn't fit like what I was trying to do. If, if all I was trying to represent was something like the privileges of an app, you have five user roles and each of those has uh, access to certain things. Mm-hmm. Usually people end up putting that in a spreadsheet into a matrix, right? Where they say this user does or does not have access to that thing. Even then you feel like you're kind of forcing it. Like you can't represent all the nuances of that privilege model, even for something simple like that, let alone adding in all the different vulnerabilities that could crop up uh, in the implementation. And so I, I always had a really hard time representing that information that not only would be easy for the, the customer to consume, but even for me to, to understand it better. And so finally, I ended up settling on graph theory just because it's much more flexible in representing complex relationships. Mm-hmm. And it's also just sort of conducive to being visually appealing. One thing I thought was neat, too, is when you're doing the graphing, you have this path that shows it. But you said something interesting is where a lot of times, depending on what type of threat modeling uh, people use, there's different kinds of threat modeling out there. Some are just asset based and they say, okay, this is this is the end target. So we're going to focus just on this, that Mm -hmm. you're already there. But here it, it explores and shows that it's really the journey Mm -hmm. of getting there just because you've patched your asset that might be meaningless. It's this mm-hmm. journey to get to that. And depending on what privileges they already have by that, by the time they get to that, the patching may be useless and pointless, right. whatever, right? Right, exactly. So in our modeling, we find over and over again, when we annotate certain servers as being really important, maybe a database server or something that has customer data in it, that that system almost certainly has some missing patches. It has some vulnerabilities. And sometimes those end up being important in the model. Mm-hmm. But so often, many, many attack scenarios all go through domain admin, right? If you can find a way to get uh, domain admin, you own all of the things. So what really matters is every single system in your environment that that you prevent getting that level of access. And that's daunting, of course, but some of those scenarios are much more likely than others. Some systems are much more likely to be be breached. In one customer environment, we were doing the modeling and, you know, 
automatically working out all the different attack scenarios. And we realized that there was one Citrix server that had lots and lots of users using it. And that Citrix server also had lots of browser vulnerabilities, flash vulnerabilities, and all that kind of thing. So clearly it was a stepping stone to get inside the environment. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, they also had many local privilege escalation vulnerabilities. And they had domain admins logging into it. So here's a box that's external facing and all of your problem is right there, right? Right, Because somebody can first, you know, whether they fish a user or they do a, a drive-by browser exploit, once they're on the machine, they escalate privileges, they run Mimikatz, they steal your domain admin creds, done. Yeah. You don't have to patch that database server. It's not going to gain you anything against that scenario, right? Yeah. I'm interested as you being an engineer and you're you're now, we're, you have to present this data in some way. And there's this human psychology about user interfaces, mm -hmm. a whole different world there, right? Oh yeah. Tell us a little bit about that journey for you. <laughs> it's it's been difficult just because I've I've never really been much of a, a UI designer or, you know, front-end developer or anything like that. But I know from the very beginning, if you can't show people what you're trying to do, then you know it's not going to click, right? You need to be able to show folks that, okay, yeah, I've got this crazy, crazy threat model and it's so big you can't look at it, but I can boil it down to some piece of something visual that really makes sense. And building it is the hard part, but the visualizing piece of it, you know, it is really important for folks and it, it's a, uh, a way to help communicate. I, I want to see, it, I, I think of it as a way to facilitate communication about security issues. Right, which I think is super important to teams because maybe the security folks all get it, but can they convince the IT team that they need to go fix that that's critical issue that they didn't think was critical before, right? Because they didn't understand the environment in the same way. Or how do I convince that one, you know, business unit to take their server down this weekend because, you know, we need to do the upgrade and it's really important. If you can show them the actual attack scenarios that are possible, likely, or what have you, or how their system actually puts the rest of the organization at risk, then hopefully that's more convincing, right? Than mm -hmm. just saying, oh, the CVSS score is 9.2. Right. Yeah. Right? I think, as you know, top-down support from C-level management is, is key. You still have to kind because a lot of them aren't, they're not technical per se, mm -hmm. but if you can come back with some, you can articulate what you're trying to say in, the, in their world mm -hmm. that's, that's meaningful, it's likely then that job of that team is going to take that server down on a weekend mm -hmm. and, and to fix it as opposed to coming to them and uh, to C-level and saying, here's a JIRA ticket and here's the CVSS score, really is important, but you know they're not going to probably do anything yeah. about it. They don't yeah. understand it. Yeah, and I, and I don't think any one tool is going to completely solve that that issue. There's so many political dynamics that go on inside companies, which I'm very grateful for having been able to work on the outside of that for so long. You still um, have your hair. I, I don't have any. Left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being a consultant, you can kind of come in, swoop in and be like, oh, these are all your problems and get out of yeah, there. Right. Know. No, I mean, we definitely we definitely want folks to be able to be successful in what they're doing. And I think so many of us in technology got were attracted to computers at a young age because maybe people are so much harder to understand, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's, they're so much less predictable and it's just so much more intuitive if you know, a computer always does what it's told, right? Yeah. And so you know, inside uh, any organization, you have a lot of these different kind of push and pull and different political capital that you have to consider. You know, the, the tool won't completely ever solve that, right? But, but at the same time, I think if you have more tools available to you, more ways to communicate, it can help security engineers do a lot better job of making their case. And that's, I think that's really valuable and more, more valuable. And I think a lot of people, you know, assume, you know, and that, and that was earlier, you asked me about that breach simulation. And that was actually one of the exercises that helped me think, okay, 
we need to come up with a better way to communicate these scenarios to management, to C-level folks, because if we can do it well, then then we actually uh, can make progress. Do you think it's ever possible in the future that this this whole thing with risk management, threat modeling, can be fully automated through something like AI, machine learning, whatever comes in the future? I don't think you're ever going to fully automate it, but I think there's lots that can be automated. I think there's a lot more that we could. I mean, the biggest challenge is just that there's so many stinking security tools out there, right? <laughs> Here I coming up with another one. But there's so many security tools out there and they look at they all look at their little silo. You you can look at tools that help you find published vulnerabilities in your application libraries or you can look at your servers and what vulnerabilities are there. Or, you know, you have all these different little scanners that can find bugs either in your code or in third-party code or something in between. And they all are just completely separate sources of information. And so definitely there's been a push in recent years to try to help sort of orchestrate that better, bring all the information together. But just bringing it all together and putting it into a bucket isn't going to solve your problem. Now you've got it on one machine. Great. How do you actually understand it? And so I think I think over time we can do way better than what we're doing right now. The, the data is available to us. It's just that we haven't started to put it together into into one model or, or diff, you know, system that can be understandable, you know, something we can do real analysis on. But, you know, after I've created this product, I just started to realize that I've basically created a monster and you have to constantly feed the monster. (laughs) If you don't feed the monster, it doesn't behave. And so in order to have a good model, you want more data, more data, more data from all these different sources. And then it gets better and better and better. And I mean, the cool thing about it is the more data you add to it, the value of that model grows super linearly, right? Yeah. So it's like it grows, you know, maybe quadratically or something, right. maybe not exponentially, right? But it's it's growing quickly as you add more things. And so the value of it, it just grows so much, even if you just add, oh, I'm just going to add an application threat model now. And I, you know, put that in manually or whatever, right. because you, you can't really automate those. Or I'm going to put in the vulnerabilities I know about that the scanner didn't find, right? And then suddenly it gets way more valuable just by yeah. adding those last little pieces, you know? And so, so I think systems like this will will take us to a completely different place and save us a ton of time, make things way, certain certain menial tasks way easier so we can focus on the bigger problems with our processes and that sort of thing. So if people want to find out more about Deep Surface, mm-hmm. where, where can they go? Uh, you know, our product is in beta right now, and so we're not really all that public-facing at the moment. The mm-hmm. website's really sad. You um, said you had a huge marketing department. That was, that was you, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're, we're early stage right now, but we do have several beta customers, and we're happy to talk to anybody and show anyone a demo, you know, just to give you more information about it. But uh, but that's where it's at right now. I think uh, over the next few months, we're going to get our, our marketing ducks in a row and, and have a lot more information online. But, but yeah, just ping us. I'm looking forward to it. Tim Morgan, thank you for coming tonight. All right. Thanks a lot, John. This podcast is brought to you by the Portland, Oregon chapter of the Open Web Application Security Project. OWASP. Check us out online and see how we're making the web a more secure place. Music is by Tomo and Animoy. And my name is John Whiteman. Thanks for listening.